I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 2. Looking at verses 11 through 15 this morning, authority in the assembly, 1 Timothy 2, 11 through 15. Last time we were together, we considered 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, and we considered the principles of modesty, focusing in particularly, in agreement with the text, because that's what the text focused in on, focusing in particularly on feminine modesty. Uh, this week, we continue to speak, and more pointedly so, about women in the assembly. Last time we were together, we made several statements which bear some measure uh, of need to repeat. We spoke about the nature of teaching about women in the assembly, and we highlighted, as we always do, that these teachings are not a comment about a woman's capacity, capability, about her worth, about her dignity. They are comments about God's design. God's design for women, God's design for the assembly. We spoke last week in part about the unbiblical nature of what is called today feminism. And we particularly spoke about the feminism that we, we find today called often third wave feminism, about the fact that feminism creates a false premise upon which they draw false conclusions. It claims to liberate women, but actually strips them of their contentment and joy, the contentment and joy that comes with living according to their design. We see these things bubble up again this week. And also consider another lie of feminism, which is very important to establish, that two can be treated as equals without being treated the same. That's the truth, that two can be treated equal without being treated the same. Two people can both be given the same amount of honor, respect, and dignity without being given the same roles and opportunities when those two things are fundamentally different. So today we talk more about women in the assembly. Last time, Paul spoke of women adorning themselves in, as becometh women of godliness, good works. That the primary thing that should reflect itself in you ladies in the assembly, and really all the time, is your good works. We spoke of the definition of modesty, not drawing attention to oneself. We considered the reality that both men and women struggle with immodesty, only we do so in different ways. We recognize that the defining feature of a godly young woman is intended to be her character, her deportment, her good works, and anything which distracts from that is moving her in the wrong direction. So women are to be adorned, as the Bible said, in shamefacedness and sobriety and humility as we defined those last week. Well, this week we speak of another element of design, particularly as it relates to women in the assembly. And this is about authority. We need to understand this fact, that what is being spoken of in this passage, and not only in this passage, but in every passage that refers to women speaking in the assembly, is rooted in principles of God's design and God-given authority. Not principles of interaction, not principles of inferiority or superiority, but God-given authority. Again, I lay that out. We're not saying... That women can't, that, that women are incapable teachers. We're not saying that women are, are, are inferior teachers. We're not saying that women are incapable leaders or inferior leaders. But what is being said is that God has a design. 
and that it is our responsibility to identify and align with God's design in every aspect of life. This will become more clear as we walk through the text. There will be much more to say about the subject. So Paul is speaking about various aspects of the assembly. And he began with men are to pray everywhere, right? And we're, we're memorizing a portion of that scripture for, for kings and for all that are in authority. Uh, we are to be lifting up holy hands without wrath or doubting. Then it speaks of women who are to adorn themselves in shamefacedness and in sobriety and in humility in the assembly. And we're speaking about the assembly. Well, now Paul is transitioning to authority in the assembly. And as we continue over the course of the next several weeks, that authority in the assembly is going to be reflected in uh, the teaching on pastors, bishops, elders, that, that office, and then the office of the deacon. And so we're going to be talking about various offices of authority in the church. But the first thing that Paul does as he establishes this new context of authority is to speak about who is intended to have the authority in the Assembly. So before he teaches about that authority, the nature of that authority, the qualifications of that authority, he first makes it very clear and emphasizes that this authority is not given by God's design to women in the assembly. So we read, you're there in 1 Timothy chapter 2, in verse 11, the Bible says, let the women learn in silence with all subjection. Let the woman, excuse me, woman, and that's important. Notice it doesn't say women, it says the woman. We'll, we'll, we'll talk about why that's important a little bit later. Let the woman learn in silence with all subjection. After calling women to be defined by godliness, and we do see it as a plural, women in verse 9 and into verse 10, but then in verse 11, let the woman learn in silence with all subjection. After calling women to be defined by their godliness, he continues to speak concerning their role of, or, or activities in the assembly. Let the woman learn in silence with all subjection. The text here is quite straightforward, but the nature of this command is not well represented if we just consider this one verse. If we just consider this one verse, then we might very well expect that women, as soon as you enter into the assembly, you, you, you keep your mouth shut. You, you be quiet you be subject, and that's it. But there is a context here. And it's important that we keep this teaching in its context. It's important in any passage of Scripture, in fact. Within the scope of certain verses and passages, we find, however, the context to be absolutely essential. And this is one of those passages where the context is essential. And that because, as I mentioned just from this verse, there are some important questions that might come to mind. Does this mean that women may not speak at all in the assembly? or at all in public? Does this mean that in order for a woman to be adorned with shamefacedness and good works, they need to be seen but not heard? We would apply these principles of modesty and shamefacedness well beyond the application of the assembly. So should we then apply the ideas of silence well beyond the assembly as well? And this is why we need this context. So let's continue into the next verse, which is going to help us establish the context for this command. Verse 12 says, But I suffer not a woman to teach, nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. So here we see a statement given as additional context to Paul's command in verse 11. He says, let the woman learn in silence with all subjection. And then he says, but I suffer not a woman to teach. So as the representative of Jesus Christ to the churches, which is what Paul is as an apostle, he says that women should not teach, but rather they should learn 
in silence. Understand this contrast because this is going to help us discern the nature of of the limits of Paul's command here. When we interpret the Bible, we are always doing our best to interpret it literally, contextually, grammatically, and historically. Literally means we take it at face value. It, it, It means what it means. But contextually, it means what it means in the context that it's given. Grammatically, it means what it means according to the natural use of language. So we're not going to redefine words and make them mean what we want them to mean in order to get the text to mean what we want it to mean. And then finally, historically, we understand what it means within the context of the history of that time. It may be that that um, there are certain elements of a command that are rooted in the history or the, the, the needs of the day. And so we see that and we say, how can we broaden this command to, to uh, apply to us today? Or can we broaden this command to apply to us today? So we, we do that. We understand that we want to interpret the Bible literally, contextually, grammatically, historically. We're not looking for what we think the Bible should say. We're looking, uh, not looking to interpret the Bible through the lens of how we feel. We are looking to understand what the author meant when the Holy Spirit inspired him to write, what God meant by having it written, looking for original intent. So when we read a command like, let the women learn in silence, our next step is to ask, what does God mean by that? What, it, what is silence? What is learning? In what context is this given? And to what extent does this command reach? Or how far does this command go? Is there some limiting factor within the context that focuses this command and gives us insight into exactly where this command is intended to be applied? And this is what verse 12 does do for us. To this end, we see this contrast between a woman learning in silence and a woman uh, teaching in the assembly, specifically not teaching in the assembly. Not even just any teacher's but rather being in a situation, not just where they're teaching, but where they are claiming usurping any authority over the men of the assembly. We'll talk more about that in a moment because this gets into a doctrine which we typically call the doctrine of headship. But let's talk about what's going on in this verse. Paul says, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and as he would seek to direct the church in the way that they should go, he says a woman should not teach. He says not only should they not teach, but they should not be put into a position where they are in authority over men in the assembly. These are two different standards related to that one principle of headship. To teach is to exercise intellectual authority over another person, over the person who is learning. If I place myself under the teaching ministry of someone, now it's one thing to be listening to people and to be... um, be listening with a critical ear, wondering if I can place myself under their teaching. We do this to people all the time, right? You listen to a person on television or you listen to a person on the radio or you listen to a person on the internet. And when you're first starting out, you're listening with a very discerning ear, deciding whether or not the things that they're saying uh, make sense or are in line with what you understand as it relates to preaching about the word of God. But then there comes a point where you place yourself under their teaching. In other words, you are willing to listen to them when they're saying things that you don't understand or don't agree with, and you're willing to allow them to shape the way you think, right? You are willing to then allow them to shape the way you understand. And so when we talk about a woman teaching in the assembly, she is claiming intellectual authority over 
by teaching over those who are learning. Submitting, the, the people under the teaching are submitting themselves to, uh, to the teacher's authority. Acknowledging them. By acknowledging a person as my teacher, I'm acknowledging a measure of authority that they have over me as it relates to the topic at hand, the topic under which or unto which I'm submitting myself. As it relates to the spiritual, as it relates to the assembly, it is not appropriate for women to exercise this authority over men, to seek to claim this authority whereby they are claiming an intellectual authority over the men of the church. Women are not to exercise authority in the church body. And then, of course, this idea of usurping authority goes beyond just the teaching and goes to leadership, goes to any exercise of authority over men in the assembly. And much to the contrary, this is what connects verse 12 to verse 11, this idea of subjection, of silence. Notice how this is designed. I took verses 11 and 12 and I shuffled it around for you so that you can see a measure of organization. What we would generally call this in the scriptures is a chiastic structure. Um, it's, it's often used in poetry. If you think of um, uh, poetry where you have a rhyming scheme that goes A, B, B, A, Right where line one rhymes with line four and line two rhymes with line three, or A, B, C, B, A, right where line one and line five rhyme, where line two and line four rhyme, and then there's, there's a middle that doesn't have a rhyme. There's sort of an a intellectual chiasm going on here where we see Paul talking about silence, and then he, he bookends his commands with the women learning in silence. He says, let the women learn in silence with all subjection, but I suffer not a woman to teach. And that's right in the center of this, right? A woman may not teach. And then, and then we go back to this subjection idea, nor to usurp authority over man. And then we go back to the silence idea, but to be in silence. And I hope you see that structure there. To this end, we see three concepts related to this idea. First, women are to be in subjection meaning they are placing themselves under authority. They don't take it. And that is a big part of what we talked about last time we were together about feminine modesty, right? That it wasn't just intended to protect the minds of the men that were in the assembly, although that is important, but particularly it is intended to reflect subjection, right? That's why it's, they're not supposed to have pearls or, or, or broidered hair or, or, or gold or costly array. The idea there was that you're not drawing attention to yourself. You're not elevating yourself in the assembly, elevating yourself over the other women that can't afford that stuff, elevating yourself over anyone in the assembly. Women are to come into the assembly in a manner of submission. And it's supposed to be reflected in the way that women dress, adorn themselves. It's supposed to be reflected in what women won't do, that being usurping authority in the assembly. So women are to be in subjection. They place themselves under authority. They don't take it. Therefore, they don't teach. Therefore, not claiming this measure of intellectual and spiritual authority, but also they don't claim any authority in the assembly. And then we see that same word bookending it, but to be in silence, showing us that we're talking about the same thing here, that Paul was defining what it means to be in silence in the second half of verse 11 and into verse 12. So, with all subjection, suffer not a woman to teach, nor do you usurp authority over a man. That is Paul's definition of what it means that a woman is to be in silence. That's the idea here. Be in silence in the beginning, be in silence at the end. Everything in between is defining B12. 
be in silence. So then the silence being referenced here is not intended to be a blanket command. Ladies, you step into the church, you're not allowed to talk. That's not what it's saying, right? It's intended to mean that women are not to speak and are not to assume any authoritative position in the church. And we find this command to be actually the second time such a concept is given in the New Testament. The first time it was given is in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 34 and 35. And in that passage, Paul says this, Let your women keep silence in the churches, for it is not permitted unto them to speak, but they are commanded to be under obedience, as also saith the law. And if they... I know I'm reading here, but my mind just went... Did, did, you, did you all see that? For, did I just flip by that really quickly? Or did... Okay, it stayed. I'm sorry. Something just flipped over, and I thought that maybe, uh, maybe you didn't see that one, that, that structure well, but I'm seeing heads that, that it did work. So good. Okay, let me come back to 1 Corinthians 14. Uh, I'm going to start at the beginning again. Let your women keep silence in the churches, for it is not permitted unto them to speak, but they are commanded to be under obedience, as also saith the law. And if they will learn anything, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is a shame for women to speak in the church. So we have this command, and it's very similar in many ways, although this one has a little bit less of that authoritative uh, the, the focus on authority. We see here the contrast. They're not permitted to speak, but are commanded to be under obedience, right? So we still see that idea of subjection, but this one almost seems a little more blanket in its statement that women are not permitted to speak, and if they will learn anything, they need to ask their husbands at home. Now, we're not walking through 1 Corinthians as we're walking through 1 Timothy. I've preached a series in 1 Corinthians before. I have also particularly focused in on this passage in a three-part series that I preached actually on a Tuesday evening way back, I think, in 2011 or 2012. It was right at the beginning of my ministry on women's role in the assembly. But uh, because these commands are so strongly rooted in context, I want to help you see what's going on here. What is going on in the context of this, this chapter that undergirds this command for women that they keep silence in the church, that they don't speak, that they are commanded to be under obedience? So in 1 Corinthians 14, we are in the passage of Scripture where Paul is speaking about spiritual gifts. Interesting. What does this have to do with spiritual gifts? We'll find out. So Paul exhorts the believers how they should go about the process of speaking in tongues within the church body. So the specific spiritual gift that's being spoken of in 1 Corinthians 14, the entire chapter nearly is directed toward this, the, the concept of speaking in tongues. In verses 1 through 5, Paul appeals unto them to pursue prophecy. Paul defines, we'll see this in just a moment, prophecy as speaking unto edification, not telling the future here. And he's exhorting them to place their priority upon speaking unto edification, that this is the role of speaking in the assembly, that if anyone is going to open their mouths in the assembly, it is intended to be that they build other people up so that people can hear, understand, and grow in the Lord. And he um, does this in contrast to speaking in tongues, which Paul makes clear is a sign unto unbelieving Jews of the truth of God's word. 
Then in verses 6 through 12, Paul argues strongly regarding the necessity of order, of clarity, and of distinction for teaching in the church. That when people teach in the church, they need to do so orderly, that they need to do so with clarity, that they need to do so with distinction. And he's speaking to this as it relates to the function of tongues in the body. To this end, Paul says, if there is any speaking of tongues in the, in the assembly, you need to have an interpreter so that there can be this thing called edification, right? Clarity uh, and, and such. And um, just, just to clarify as we talk about this, I just mentioned here, and I mention in 1 Corinthians when I preach it, that we do not recognize tongues as, a valid, as having a valid use in the assembly today. I just mentioned, and I've established this before, that the Bible is quite clear. Paul, Paul is explicit that he says tongues are for a sign not to them that believe, but to them that believe not. And then as we look at the, the teaching of those signs, we see that it was a specific sign given to Jews that there was going to be an ushering in of a new context, of a new thing. And so if tongues are for a sign to them that believe not, that's explicit in the Word of God. And if the prophecies that men would speak in tongues, it was given as a sign of the last days to the Jews, which is mentioned in Joel. Then we recognize that tongues was a, a, a implemented in the early church as a means by which for the, the unbelieving Jews to see a validation of this new thing that God was doing no longer through the Jewish people, but through this body called the church. So we see this transition that took place and we would recognize through that that particularly as it's done today, particularly the idea of looking at tongues as a means by which to validate someone's salvation, absolutely unbiblical. The idea of, of speaking in an ecstatic language that no one can understand, absolutely unbiblical. These are, are absolutely unbiblical as it relates to the Word of God. So let me just, let me just mention that as we are uh, passing through here. So Paul says, if one does speak in tongues, there should be an interpreter. In verses 13 through 17, we see Paul's argument regarding the necessity of understanding unto edification and teaching. That the point of teaching is to edify. If it's not edifying, then it's not doing anyone any good. In verses 18 through 21, Paul gives the personal testimony of himself regarding tongues. He says that he would rather speak five words with understanding than 10,000 words in an unknown tongue. So he is heavily elevating prophecy, the idea of speaking unto edification, and directly minimizing the idea of tongues in the assembly. In verses 22 through 26, we find Paul's revelation that the purpose of tongues is overshadowed by the superiority of prophecy. And then in verses 27 through 33, we read instructions regarding tongues and prophecy for general order in the church. Now, that's the first 33 verses leading us to this command. Interesting, is it not? All of this stuff about tongues, and then we get to this. Let your women keep silence in the churches, for it is not permitted unto them to speak, but they are commanded to be under obedience, as also saith the law. And if they will learn anything, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is a shame for women to speak in the church." So understand what we've been reading about here. The word being used in 1 Corinthians, which is translated to speak, is the Greek word laleo. It's used 24 times in 1 Corinthians 14 alone. So this word is all over the place. The idea of speaking, it's the same word we see here, 
not permitted unto them to speak. And I want to trace this word through 1 Corinthians just briefly, uh, chapter 14, just to highlight a few things. We see in verse 3, the Bible says, But he that prophesieth speaketh unto men to edification and exhortation and comfort. So Paul contrasts this with speaking in tongues in verse 2. And we find Paul defines the use of the word prophecy. When he says prophecy, he's referring to the act of speaking unto men to edification and exhortation and comfort. So we're not talking about telling the future here. We're talking about preaching the word of God. And we see that word speaketh here. Uh, It's found two times in verse 5. It's found two times in verse 6. In verse 6, we read this. Now, brethren, if I come unto you speaking with tongues, what shall I profit you except I shall speak to you either by revelation or by knowledge or by prophesying or by doctrine? So Paul highlights here that the speaking in tongues is not as profitable as those who would speak concerning those things that are meant to edify, those things that are meant to build up. And here we begin to understand that Paul's entire point uh, in regard to authoritative verbal contribution in the assembly is the context of this chapter. That Paul is not just speaking about speaking in tongues here, but he's speaking about the manner of of authoritative contribution in the assembly. That when we come together in the assembly and people are talking, we're not talking to hear ourselves talk, we're not talking to make ourselves look godly, we're not talking for any other reason but that we might contribute to the spiritual lives of those in the assembly might make them learn more about the Word of God, might bring them into a place of edification, might build them up in the Lord. So as it relates to this, when Paul is talking about speaking in 1 Corinthians 14, he's not talking about someone coming in and asking you how you're doing this morning. He's talking about what we're doing when we're functioning in the assembly, right? He's talking about authoritative speaking. He's talking about what happens, can I say it this way, during church. So the opening of one's mouth to say something of authoritative value in the church, not just the idea of talking at all. In verse 9, we see uh, the word speak come up two times, speaking of purposeful uh, speaking in the assembly. In verse 11, we see it two times. We jump to verse 19, where we, we read this. Paul says, Yet in the church I had rather speak five words with my understanding that by my voice I might teach others also than 10,000 words in an unknown tongue. So I mentioned this already. Paul correlates speaking in the church with teaching. So as he speaks about those five words he'd rather speak in the assembly, he's not just thinking, good morning, how are you? Right? That's not what he's saying. He's saying he'd rather have five words to teach something that's clear and authoritative than to have 10,000 words in an unknown tongue to say something that nobody's going to understand. And that's the idea here. This is the context of 1 Corinthians 14. The context of the word to speak in 1 Corinthians 14 is not just to say anything, but to get up and to say something of authoritative value in the church. That's what we're seeing here. Verse 21, Paul correlates speaking with an authoritative appeal to obey God as quoting Uh, as quoted from prophecy. He quotes from Isaiah 28, verses 11 and 12. Verse 23, um, Paul is speaking here about authoritative verbal contribution in the assembly as well. So all throughout, we've seen this idea that the words speak, though in other contexts, might just mean to open your mouth and let words fall out. 
here is speaking about contributing something authoritatively in the church. Verse 28, we read this. But if there be no interpreter, let him keep silence in the church, but let him speak to himself and to God. Now here, this is very important. Take note of this. This is the first time we see the word silence in 1 Corinthians 14. And guess what? It's not talking about women being silent. It's talking about a man who wants to speak in tongues, but who doesn't have an interpreter. Verse 28 calls for men to keep silence if their act of authoritative speaking is not going to contribute to the edification of the body. If you're just going to get up, say a bunch of words in an unknown tongue that no one understands and sit down, just don't get up. Just keep silent in the church because you're not doing anyone any good. So they are explicitly commanded, keep silent. The word there, notice, the Greek word, sagao. If all he wants to do is speak in an unknown tongue, then sit down, no interpreter, then there's no edification, so just don't speak. Speak to yourself, speak to God, that's fine, but don't open your mouth and let words come out. This is the same word that we're going to find in verse 34, calling women to keep silent. Take note of that. And that's what this brings us back to. Verse 34, let your women keep silent. So in verse 28, men keep silent if you, are, if you want to speak in tongues, but there's no interpreter. Then let your women keep silence in the churches. Now, if we just read verses 34 and 35, women keep silence in the churches. Okay, women aren't allowed to speak at all. Women be silent. But if you read it in context, what do we find? There's a context here, right? This word silence has already been used once. And it was used to talk about a man who's not going to open his mouth to speak authoritatively when he doesn't have an interpreter to help him. So then what would be the natural understanding of women keep silent in the church? It would not be women don't open your mouth. It would be women don't speak authoritatively, right? And then we see, for it is not permitted unto them to speak. Okay, well, we've seen that word speak come up already lots and lots of times. And it doesn't mean that a person can't greet you in the assembly or say good morning or anything of the sort. It meant don't speak authoritatively. Don't teach. Don't, don't, don't actively contribute authoritatively to the assembly. So if we couch this command in verse 34 in, in, in the context within which it's given, it fundamentally changes our understanding of what this command is being given to women, of what the command is being given to women. This is the context. So how should we interpret this command for women to keep silence? Well, if we're going to keep this in context, if we do that, we find that the command is not saying that women cannot speak at all, but just like the man who wants to speak in tongues but doesn't have an interpreter, so he should not speak in tongues. Women should not speak in the assembly, but rather should be in obedience. They should not claim authoritative speaking in the assembly. That It is not appropriate. It just as it's not appropriate for a man without an interpreter to speak in the assembly in tongues. It is not appropriate for a woman to take authoritative control, to usurp authority over the man, to teach, to have authoritative speaking in the assembly. It is not becoming, it is not right. This is the context. 
Now, no one would say that verse 28, because the Bible says that that man needs to keep silence. No one would say that if a man comes into church in that day, of course, and he wanted to speak in tongues, but he had no interpreter, that he couldn't say anything. He just couldn't speak in tongues. So why would we then say that women, when they come into assembly, can't say anything when, when the context is speaking of authoritative speaking here? They're not permitted thus to speak. But notice this, and notice the contrast here. They are to be under obedience. That speaks of submission. That speaks of that idea of acknowledging that women are not to have usurp authority or to teach in the assembly. Then we get to verse 35. And if they will learn anything, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is a shame for women to speak in the church. So this is a whole nother level here, it would seem, right? If they will learn anything, let them ask their husbands at home. In the context, Paul links women learning anything to this concept of speaking, showing that we aren't just talking about teaching here, but we're also talking about a manner of questioning. But remember our context. The point has been authority and contribution. And the keys to understanding this are two. First, understanding what the word here, ask, means. Second, understanding how the idea of that word ask relates to another verse in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, specifically verse 29, which we've not talked about yet. So the word ask here is not the normal word in the New Testament to ask as it would relate to sitting under a teacher and asking them a question. The normal word for asking as in, as in a humble request, like my child asking me if they can have dessert or um, me asking you if you'd be willing to, uh, if you wanted to go out to lunch with me or something to the effect, that would be the Greek word aiteo. It's found 25 times in the New Testament, not used all that often, but that's that idea of just asking someone something. Now, the word that we find here is found significantly more times, actually, in the New Testament. You say, well, pastor, what do you mean that it's not the common word for ask? But this word, found 61 times in the New Testament, reflects an authoritative inquiry, or can I use the word demand? It's a word used in Matthew chapter 12, verse 10, when the Pharisees ask Jesus whether it is lawful to heal on the Sabbath day. They're demanding of him. They, they are demanding an answer. Is it lawful? That they're, not, they're not humbly submitting themselves to Jesus and saying, Jesus, can I ask you a question? They're, they're, they are authoritatively demanding. Is it lawful? In the same way, I'd go up to my children and say, didn't I tell you to clean this room? Now, I'm not actually asking them. I know I did, right? I'm, I'm, I'm phrasing my inquiry, my expectation in the form of a question. That's what the Pharisees did to Jesus all the time. That's why we see so many of these occurrences in the New Testament. It's the word used in Matthew chapter 16, verse 1, when the Pharisees and Sadducees tempted Jesus by asking for a sign from heaven. They were asking for a sign from heaven, but not in a submissive way, but in a demanding way. Show us a sign if you, if you say you're Jesus. So if you say you're Messiah, show us a sign if you say that you are God. It's the word that speaks of inquisition, of demand, or of interrogation. And it is significant that this is the word that is used here of women in the assembly. That if they will learn anything, let them ask their husbands at home. And this idea is, is linked 
to very closely to verse 29. So we're in verse 35. So you just go back a few verses, and in verse 29, the Bible says this. Let the prophets speak two or three, and let the other judge. So what we find here is that a part of the assembly was that there were going to be these men that prophesied. And remember, we've already defined prophecy from verse 3 as speaking unto edification and exhortation and comfort, right? So we're not talking about telling the future. We're talking about those that would get up and preach and teach. And so there was a manner in the assembly where these guys would get up, two or three of them would get up, and they'd all say a little something. And then while they were speaking, the others were called to judge. They were called to listen to what that person has to say and to discern whether or not what they're saying is in line with sound doctrine and truth. Naturally, if there is a setting where there are multiple people speaking and everyone else is listening and judging, it would not be too unlikely that from time to time there might be disagreements. This is what we do in Sunday school here. This is what we do on Tuesday nights here. We talk, and as we talk back and forth, there's um, things that are put out. Uh, there's disagreements with, with me or, or, or perhaps seeking clarification on how something um, might have been said or, or um, a slightly different perspective on something. And so we go through this process of iron sharpening iron, of everyone getting better by talking through these things together. And this was a part of the assembly, but women did not have the right to partake in that judgment just as they didn't have the right to partake in the teaching. And the point is the authority. In the assembly, women are not to put themselves into a position either in teaching or in interaction where they are seeking to exercise authority over a man. And so verse 35 is not adding new teaching so much as it is giving the natural extension of the principle that women do not have authority in the assembly. It is just as inappropriate for a woman to publicly contend with, argue against a point of teaching in the church as it is for her to give a point of teaching to the church. If there's something wrong, if she would learn anything and she needs to disagree, if there is some element of, of what she heard that she can, would contend with or disagree with, it is not her right in the assembly to challenge that teaching to take upon herself a measure of authority, but rather she is to go through the proper channels of her male authorities in her life, particularly here it says her husband at home, that would be husband or father, or if there's no husband or father in the assembly, presumably you'd go through either uh, elder deacon in the church or uh, personally to the uh, teacher himself. And she would filter her disagreement through the proper male authorities, lest she breach the principle of headship. And that's what this is about. This is about decorum, appropriateness, authority, and headship in the assembly. Because it is a shame for a woman to, to usurp authority over a man in the assembly. It is a shame for a woman to teach in the assembly. So she would shame herself in the assembly by contending against teaching, just as she would by teaching herself in the assembly. Now, two more thoughts as it relates to this. First, it is for this reason that during teaching opportunities, our church uh, is willing to allow women to contribute in a submissive way in the assembly. We don't regard an actual question or an answer to a question 
as it would relate to Sunday school and Tuesday night when we have an open forum, or, or, or comments, answers to questions, and questions. We, don't, we would not relate those to usurping authority in the assembly to breach this spiritual principle, and that's why we have chosen to do that as it relates to our specific church. This does, however, come with a measure of risk, doesn't it? It comes with a measure of risk that when we're all talking together, a woman in the assembly might take it upon herself to usurp authority, might take it upon herself to ask something, to demand something, to rebuke or, or, or to um, claim some measure of authority or to come outside of submission. So as a part of allowing this in this particular church, it is the responsibility of church leadership to confront these things and to openly rebuke them if they are to come to pass. And if church leadership is unwilling to do that, or if they feel as though that would cause more problems than, than female contribution would cause solutions, then they would limit women's interaction in the assembly in order to protect the assembly from that shame. Likewise, in each family, the father does the same. A father might place a higher standard upon his family than the church places, and that's absolutely fine as a way of protecting his family from breaching this principle in the assembly, and that is 100% appropriate. But based upon the principles that, that I've just laid out, we do not as a church officially regard women contributing in a submissive way, asking questions, answering questions, um, making those comments, to, to fall outside the scope of the principles of the Word of God as it's related to the context within which this is given. Um, but there's disagreement about that, and that is understandable. Second, I want to say again, and the text even acknowledges this, this is not implying in any way that women are inferior or incapable. It's just that they have a role to play. It's rooted in the doctrine of headship, in authority, and as they align with that doctrine, they do right by the Lord. Which brings us back to our text. Verse 12, but I suffer not a woman to teach nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. For Adam was first formed, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in the transgression. Notice the reason Paul gives here is not inferiority. It doesn't say that women should not teach or usurp authority over man because they can't, because they're inferior, because they're incapable. It says that uh, it gives a couple of different principles here. First, Adam was formed. First, then Eve. Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived. And first ate of the fruit. There are any number of principles and concepts at play here, some of them historical, some of them we might call anecdotal. Historically, what we find in the book of Genesis is that Eve was made as a help meet to Adam. Bone of his bone, flesh of his flesh. Eve was not given dominion over the earth and over creation. Adam was given dominion over creation. So we find a principle which Paul spells out very clearly in 1 Corinthians 11, verses 1 and 3. He says, Be ye followers of me, even as I also am of Christ. Now I praise you, brethren, that ye remember me in all things, and keep the ordinances as I, or, as I delivered them to you. But I would have you know that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of every woman is the man, and the head of Christ is God. This is the principle of headship. That man was made a little lower than the angels. He was given authority over the created universe. And woman was made out of man, and she was made for Man, man is the head of the woman. Paul says this as he continues in verses 8 and 9 of 1 Corinthians 11. For the man is not of the woman, but the woman of the man. Neither was the man created for the woman, but the woman for the man. 
Woman came from man. Woman was created for the man to be his helpmeet. To this end, the doctrine of headship is established, that God is over man. Specifically, Christ is over man. Man is over woman. And every example of a man yielding his headship in the Bible to a woman is a negative example. Now, not an example of a man listening to a woman or relying upon a woman or being held by a woman. These are all wonderful things in Scripture that we see uh, that that are reflected in any number of, of accounts where women are exalted for such things. But when men have yielded their authority to a woman, it has never come without spiritual and often physical consequences. Whether we speak of Adam and Eve, where Adam yielded his headship to Eve, partook of the fruit, and um, mankind fell to sin. Whether we talk about Abram and Sarai, where Abram yielded to, to his headship to Sarai, had a child with Hagar, the Egyptian, and the devastating consequences of that. Whether we talk about Deborah and Barak, which we talked a little bit about um, a week ago Tuesday. God has designed men to have authority. It's not about any, it's not about the, the capabilities of women and men as much as it is about the design of God, where, how God has designed men and women to function. We see this very clearly as the Bible teaches husbands and wives with numerous exhortations in the Word of God for wives to submit to their husbands. We see it very clearly as it relates to the church that women should not exercise spiritual authority over men in the assembly, and this is headship. Now, Paul also does appeal to some more anecdotal ideas here. Apart from just the fact that Adam yielded his headship, Paul does appeal to the reality that Eve had been deceived by the serpent and Adam had not been. Now, as far as I'm concerned, this is by no means blaming Eve for the fall of mankind to sin. In fact, I would say quite the opposite to be true. Adam and Eve both had a fault reflected here, but just as men and women are different, so too their faults were different. Eve was deceived, and so she partook of the fruit and transgressed the law. Adam was not deceived, but also partook of the fruit, which means what Eve did through being deceived, Adam did with his eyes wide open. Eve was tricked. Adam knowingly rebelled. Now these two wrongs do seem to reflect anecdotally what we find as we consider the nature of men and women. And we say this generally because we know that each man and woman is very different, right? There are always exceptions. But as we speak of God's design, God has made women to think more subjectively, sympathetically, and empathetically than men. This is why women are so good with children as a general rule, because they're very aware of the naturally sensitive childlike emotions. Child falls, guy says, get up, brush yourself off. The mom gives a hug and picks them up and holds them. And th- there's a big difference between the natural inclinations of a man and a woman as it relates to emotions. This is why uh, women often undergird the momentum of charity work that as it relates to charity work, you often see women undergirding its momentum because women are more naturally empathetic. They more naturally walk a mile in another person's shoes. And this is wonderful. And this is so needful in society 
society needs that, that, that empathy. Society needs that sympathy. So society needs that, that, that emotion. Society needs that soft and tender heart. But you know where it isn't very good? Leadership and decision-making. Empathy, sympathy, emotions, soft and tender heart. This is not a good attribute to have if you want to be a good leader. Decisions must often be made in spite of empathetic or sympathetic considerations. I must stand for truth regardless of how it's going to make you feel. It's a lot easier for a man to just say what is and to walk away without really caring how a person felt about it than it is for a woman to do the same. Now, again, I'm broad brushing here, but we are talking generalities, and these are generalities historically, sociologically. I don't know that anyone could argue they don't hold true. I must do what's necessary to lead, even if it hurts someone's feelings. And that's not always an easy thing to do. And perhaps you've noticed the trend in our culture. One of the things that we find today is that as a general trend, leaders are being called to lead by emotion rather than by logic. This is a, this is a huge push in our culture today. As a matter of fact, even as it relates to the, 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 the general conservative governance we have at the higher levels of governing today, where that conservative governance has gone majorly wrong, it has gone wrong because there has been an inroad of empathy and sympathy and an overriding of the, the clear facts of the situation. And so the empathy and the sympathy, they need to be there. If we have cold, hard facts without any sympathy at all, we get a level of tyranny. But to make decisions based upon how we feel rather than on what we know is a danger. And it's a danger that is becoming more and more prominent in our culture because our culture is being more and more feminized. And as the culture becomes more feminized, we are going to see a lot more of this determination to lead by emotion rather than leading by reality. As third-wave feminism demands that men think and act more with their line of thinking, society is being driven by empathy rather than by truth. And it has brought us to a place where we find ourselves today where on one side there's fact-based arguments, on the other side there's emotion-based arguments. And it's getting all muddied. And this is where our society begins to crumble, where we spend on social programs without any regard for how to pay for them. Now, it's great to help people, but you know what you need to think about before you can help a person? Can we afford it, right? Where we affirm people in life-destroying decisions because telling them they're wrong would hurt their self-esteem or self-worth. It's great to make people feel good about themselves, but you know what we shouldn't do? Make them feel good about bad decisions. And the fact that we're allowing people to feel good about their bad decisions is destroying our society and our culture. There's a place for sympathy. There's a place for empathy. There's a place for these things, but it's not very good as an extension of leadership. Having an authority lead through empathy will lead to ruin and dysfunction. And to this end, Paul says, 
as we see here, Adam was first formed, then Eve. Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in the transgression. She was driven by those naturally God-given elements of her nature into an element of deception. And Paul uses this as an anecdotal reason why women should not be teaching or usurping authority in the assembly. God has designed women, much to the contrary, to have a very different role in the assembly. But God has designed this role to be very, very important nonetheless. That in society, in family, in the church, God has specifically equipped women, first, to excel at the role that he's given to them, and second, to find their fullest contentment when they are aligned with the role that he has given to them. And this is a faith proposition. What we've learned over the course of our time in Hebrews 11 is that faith always comes before blessing, right? Faith always precedes blessing, which means that women aren't going to fully understand the degree to which they can both thrive and find contentment in the role that God has given them in the church until they have the faith to exercise it. And that leads us to our final verse in verse 15. Let's read the whole thing, uh, verses 12 through 15 again for context. But I suffer not a woman to teach, nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. For Adam was first formed, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in the transgression. Notwithstanding, she shall be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith and charity and holiness with sobriety. So this verse speaks of a redemption. The word saved here is not, is, it's the same word that we see all throughout the New Testament that, that is saved, means being saved, but it's one of many, many times where it's not speaking about being born again or being justified, uh, but rather some other form of salvation. All throughout the New Testament, being saved references any number of things. It references people being healed from diseases. They're called being saved. Uh, being delivered out of difficult circumstances. People are saved. Having material or temporal success. The word salvation is used to describe that. Along with, of course, the spiritual ways that the word saved is used. Salvation from sin, salvation from the lake of fire, salvation on the day of judgment, these sorts of things. So the word saved is a very context-dependent word. As we look at this context, it's very clear that we're not talking about being saved from your sins here, right? We're not talking about being born again. We're talking about women and their role in the assembly. And if I could, if I could bring this down to a question, it would be this. Okay, the Bible's telling me, a woman asking, the Bible's telling me that I'm not allowed to teach. I'm not allowed to have an authoritative role where I'm usurping authority over men in the assembly. What good am I then? Am I just supposed to sit here and look pretty and be quiet. Is that it? Do I serve no function in the assembly then? And that's what this verse is intended to answer. No, there is a redemption for women in the assembly. And as a matter of fact, it's, it's, it's beyond essential. If the woman is not invited to have authority in the assembly, then what is her role? What will save her from being marginalized by the church? From the church saying, you know what, we're just going to look for men and not for women because women don't matter in the church. Or we're just going to care about men and not women because women don't matter in the church. What, what saves her from that? What, what brings her to that place of equality and elevation in the church? Well, Paul says her salvation is childbearing. Now, once again, 
we come upon a concept which, which if, if a modern fem- feminist ever listens to this sermon, she's going to start foaming at the mouth right here, right? That, that her salvation is childbearing. That is uh, a contention which every fiber of a feminist would recoil against. Society, the, the idea that society pressures women to be mothers and to have children and binding themselves to the home and stripping them of their liberty and of their autonomy. And this is a natural way for the faithless to view childbearing. The same way a young person that is struggling with his faith might look out at the world and might see the promises of, of sexual indulgence or might see the promise of chemical indulgence, or might see the promise of, uh, of, of indulgement in entertainment and say, wow, God is really holding me back from something. I'm really missing out on something because they don't understand what the Word of God has to say about those things and, and, and the nature of God's protection. In that same way, they might look out at wealth and of glory and of fame and of honor and say, wow, I'm really missing out on something because I'm being humble. I'm really missing out on something because of this idea of meekness. I'm really missing out on something because I'm turning the other cheek rather than clocking that guy in, in his chin. And in the same way that there would be that, that, that draw to feel like that that, uh, that, that young person might, might be missing out on something, there's a natural, natural and understandable feeling in the hearts of some women that to have children is to yield the most valuable years of their lives and to bind them to the lives of others in a way that, that just is not appealing to them. And it is only as one embraces God's design that one sees the tremendous value and blessing in that opportunity. This is no less true of childbearing than any other opportunity within God's design. There is a salvation for women, a redemption of her value and necessity in the church, and that in the fact that women bear and raise the next generation of the church. The old adage, which we referenced a couple of months ago in our family series, the hand that rocks the cradle rules the world, right? History has acknowledged full well the power of mothers in society. Even though the majority of history has not allowed, uh, most of, majority of societies have never allowed women to have the same rights of, as men as it relates to authority, as it relates to leadership, as it relates to these things. Yet there is no, no time in society's history, there's no time in recorded history where it has not been acknowledged how important and impactful mothers are on society. It is for this reason that the honor of women historically has been centered around that most singular and obvious thing which women can do, which men never can or will. And that's bear children. Not only does the mother then become the fabric of society, but she becomes the fabric of the church. She is not the one standing up and teaching. She's not the one standing up leading. But she is the one who is bringing into the world, nurturing and preparing the next generation of leaders. Her redemption is when she sees her children continuing in faith and charity and holiness with sobriety. Now, there's a, this is a very controversial phrase. If they continue in faith and charity and holiness with sobriety. And I have a, I guess you could say, a controversial interpretation of this. The question becomes who is they? Who's the they here if they continue? Notwithstanding, she shall be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith and charity and holiness with sobriety. 
Most commentators will say they is women, the women, the women who are being saved. That, that she shall um, be saved in childbearing if effectively if she continues in faith and charity and holiness with sobriety. That's because they don't like the idea of a woman being her salvation being contingent upon someone else's actions. But the problem is there's just no reason why the she should become they. Throughout, as I said, most commentators will say that they as women. There are even some Bibles where even though in the Greek it says they, they will put she into the text. Specifically because they don't like the implications of the idea that the they is someone other than women. But remember how I mentioned in verse 10, when I read verse 10, I said, uh, verse 11, excuse me, but let the woman learn in silence, not the women learn in silence. We see in verse 10, singular, woman. We see in verse 11, uh, uh, um, excuse me, if you see in verse 11, the singular woman. Verse 12, the singular woman. Verse 14, the singular woman. Verse 15, the singular she. Which means if we were going to say they speaks of women, we'd have to go all the way back to verse 10 to find the pronoun antecedent agreement. That doesn't make any sense when children is right next to they, or the idea of childbearing is right next to they. One might contend, well, we don't, what if she only has one child? These sorts of things. Granted, understood. It's a confusing passage. There's a lot of different ideas about what this means. But I believe very strongly that what is being said here is that a woman, her redemption in the assembly, in the church, right? We're not talking about society. We're talking about her function in the church. Is as she sees her children grow up to be functional, godly, faithful, holy, charitable members of that church, she looks and says... It was worth it. I have contributed greatly to the furthering of the faith. As she sees her children win souls to Christ, bring people into understanding of the word of God, serve and love and honor Christ, that these mothers look back upon all that effort and that difficulty and say, it was worth it. And she knows full well, as does the rest of the church, just how much she did for the assembly because of her faithfulness with her children. I find this to be a very credible interpretation because I find this to be very credible in our own church. We have a fairly small church and our church is contributed greatly by our young people. And those young people are a tremendous amount of help to the body. I've had my parents visit before, and I've heard people go up to my mother and say, good job with your son. I've heard the same thing for others in the assembly, where somebody has gone up and said to their mother, your child did a good job today. Your child was a blessing today. So we see this functioning all around us that we are all our mother's children and that as mothers see their children functioning, contributing, and blessing the assembly, they find a redemption that all of that effort, all of that work has now done a tremendous service to the assembly. 
a service without which it would be obvious. If, if, uh, now, we, we have one or two men that play the piano here, but none that play it regularly, per se. But if we didn't have this piano accompanying us, it would become very noticeable, wouldn't it? We had a lovely special this morning. We have a constant service, ser- serving by the, the, the young people in our church. And our church would be very different without that. Mothers, you are contributing. You have contributed. Your contribution to the church as your children continue in faith and charity and holiness with sobriety is invaluable. You need to know that. One more thing to mention here. What about those women who aren't married, who don't have children? Does that mean that they're useless to the church? Well, no. We understand from Scripture that there are many women who are unmarried. In fact, 1 Corinthians 7, Paul even encourages men and women in their context and present condition to remain unmarried. He says of these women in 1 Corinthians 7.34, there's a difference between a wife and a virgin. The unmarried woman careth for the things of the Lord that she may be holy, both in body and in spirit, but she that is married careth for the things of the world, how she may please her husband. Though perhaps not a majority of women have this grace to remain unmarried, Paul says that those who do have the opportunity to live free from the temporal concerns that would accompany being a wife and a mother, thus freeing her to devote herself, if she's, if she's willing, wholly to the Lord. And while she would still not be in a position to teach or to lead, to usurp authority over the man, she can be invaluable to the church. And we see this all throughout the examples of not just the word of God, but through history. We saw of, of women who were unmarried who ministered to Jesus, women who were unmarried who ministered to Paul, women who were unmarried who served their churches with faithfulness. And the time would fail us to study through all those examples of women who were unmarried and yet simultaneously did great things for the church. And perhaps because they were unmarried, were able to devote themselves to, to the works of the Lord in those ways. And so we see this as a general rule, but not necessarily as a blanket statement that every woman must get married, every woman must have children in order to have value in the assembly. With that in, uh, being said, we need to apply uh, quickly this morning, and we'll have three applications. Point number one, women are not to be given or to take for themselves authority in the assembly. We've said it time and again, women, sound Bible doctrine states that women should not teach men lead men in the assembly. Women have no biblical authority to be pastors in churches. Women have no biblical authority to be put in positions of church leadership. And while women may do very well in these positions, in every practical measurement, you can rest assured that there will always be spiritual consequences for a church that ignores the clear teaching of God's word in any matter, including this one. Naturally, as we consider this idea, we talk about women teaching men, not necessarily women teaching women. The principle of women teaching women is one which is uh, very important in the Word of God. Titus chapter 2, verses 3 through 5. The aged women likewise, that they in behavior, be in behaviors becometh gut holiness, not false accusers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things, that they may teach the young women to be sober, to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, keepers at home, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God be not blasphemed. Women, it is expected of you. You ought to be. Sound doctrine 
demands, exhorts you to be teaching one another, that the elder women be teaching the younger women how to do this thing, how to live life, how to be proper young ladies with one careful warning. And we're, we're running out of time, but I need to mention this. It has not been uncommon for women to create Bible studies and devotional groups who gather together and the teacher or the leader will, will come together in a Bible study fashion with a bunch of other women, whether it be you know, during the day or, or, or whatever the case may be, and then they will proceed to undermine the teachers, preachers, and doctrine of the church in a Bible study setting. They will get together and they'll say, I know pastor preaches this, but that's not right. This is what the Bible says. And if only people understood the Bible and then they go off and, and they create their own little church inside the church of, of women. While their husbands are at work or in the safety of such a setting, they create their own little realm of spiritual authority. And they sow the seeds of discord between wife and husband. They sow the seeds of discord between the women and the authorities of the church. This is just as unbiblical as if she were standing up in the church doing it face to face. For, her to, for, for, for women to create their own little Bible study that seeks to contradict and undermine the authority of the church is unbiblical and absolutely contrary to sound doctrine, just as if they were doing it in the church itself. So that needs to be said. That for women to come together and to create, create kind of their own spiritual authority is to still undermine, usurp the authority of of the leaders of the church. Women may not be teaching men, of course, but a woman can still usurp authority if she's teaching other women to disregard the church authority and the church teachers or to disregard their husbands and their husbands' leadership. These things serve to divide the church. It fosters a heart of disunity and rebellion. It breaches the principles laid out in 1 Timothy 2, and it ought not be so. So women are not to be given or to take to themselves authority in the church. We see this slippery slope happening today. It began with divorce, then it's women in the church, then it's sodomites in the church, then it's transgenders in the church. And that slippery slope continues if we do not stand for the word of God and the design of God. Point number two. Women can submissively interact in the assembly. How any given church applies this principle naturally is up to that church. How any given family re, uh, applies that principle is naturally up to the father of that family. But as I mentioned, we regard the right of women to ask questions in a submissive manner, to answer questions in a submissive manner, to generally interact in assembly functions within the scope of submission. That comes with that manner of danger, which I spoke of earlier, where the leadership must be willing to step up and confront error when it comes up. Other churches, to avoid this conflict, just avoid this scenario altogether. They don't paint a, an opportunity for women to interact in an authoritative manner in the assembly, and that certainly is fine. That's not a problem. Each church, each family, each individual must reconcile with their own understanding, faith, and conscience to know where you are comfortable in this regard and within the scope of the principles of submission as they are related in Scripture. But one thing is certain. No matter where we fall on this, the principle of submission must not waver. The principle of headship must not waver. That's where the line must be drawn. Point number three. The role of women in the assembly is not inferior, inferior to that of men, only different. Like with everything related to God's design for men and women, we always recognize that one gender is not inferior to the other, that they are equally valuable in the eyes of God, 
that in Christ there is neither bond nor free, male nor female, Jew nor Gentile, but we are all one. But being equal is not being the same. Society is, of course, confused on this point today. Modern feminism is not a fight for equality. It's a fight for sameness. They insist that men and women are the same and should be treated the same. And this is simply impossible because it's simply not true. Men and women are different. And because we are different, we have different strengths. We have different weaknesses. This is how God has made us. We have different abilities. We have different inabilities. This is how God has made us. We have different spiritual, societal, and church roles and responsibilities. And this is by God's design. It's okay that my nose can't see anything because I've got eyes to see. It's okay that my ears can't smell anything because I've got a nose to smell. It's okay that the parts of my body are different. And it's okay that I'm going to treat them slightly differently based upon their needs. I put a knee brace on my knee when it hurts. I don't have a brace on my ear when it hurts. It's not going to help to put a brace on my ear. If I try to put a brace on my ear because it hurts, because that's what I do to my knee, I'm not going to be helping my ear any because my ear doesn't need a brace. That's not going to help. So we can't treat everything the same just because they each have a valid function. We have to treat them in accordance to their makeup, to their design. And this is God's design. One of the things which the whole of the biblical record makes abundantly clear is that there's always a blessing in identifying and aligning with God's design. And there's always consequences when we miss or ignore it. Because the word is going to operate according to God's design, whether we identify it or whether we agree with it or not. In these verses today, we see the beginning of a discussion which will carry over into 1 Timothy 3 as it relates to authority in the assembly. We're going to start talking about bishops and deacons next in the church. But what is settled, first of all, is that as it relates to authority in the church, this responsibility falls to the men. And the women contribute to the assembly in different ways. The greatest and most important of these being that they provide for the next generation of the church. It's my prayer that we would be a church that humbly regards the nature of God's design and lives within the complete and joyful submission of the way that God has made us. And by the way, it's not that that doesn't just mean women, you need to understand. It's not just an exhortation for women to align with submission. But, and this might even be more difficult sometimes, it's an exhortation for men to align with leadership. Men, if our women are going to place themselves under authority in the assembly, then we need to step up and lead so that we're not aimless. That's very important as well. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.